Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here with us today. And Father, you have not drawn us here, not just to this building, but to all of those that are watching in the now virtual world in which we live. Father, you've not called us here without purpose. You've called us here because there's something you want to speak to our hearts. And so, Father, may I get out of the way. May all of the things that may be vying for and pulling for our attention just be brushed aside. And may these few moments we spend in your word, may we hear you whisper into our souls today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to briefly explore with you uh, the, the life of two individuals, two individuals whose narratives seem to almost be parallel with each other. Uh, two individuals both called by God to ministry, one called to be a prophet, one called to be a pastor. Both who experience the joy and excitement of what it is to respond to God's call and the joy of serving Him. And yet at the same time, both men who experienced pain and suffering, men who knew what it was to live life with despair and wonder if hope would ever come back at all. One man knew the reason for his pain, the reason for his suffering. The other did not. And yet at the end of the day, as we think about the life of these two men, we'll discover that they both came to the same understanding about the God who meets us in the midst of our suffering. I look first at the prophet. It's a surreal experience as the man makes his way down the streets of the once proud city of Jerusalem. As he looks around him, everything that he once knew is gone. The huge walls of the city that no one could penetrate have now been breached in multiple places, and even the portions of the wall that is still there is cracked and crumbling. The large wooden gates that used to bar the entrances to the city have now been ripped off of their hinges, thrown to the ground, and set ablaze, and their remnants still smolder on the ground. As he looks around him, he can see the rubble of what once was homes, what once were places of business, now gone, now destroyed. But maybe most heartbreaking of all is he looks up towards the Temple Mount where that proud Temple of Solomon used to stand. All he sees is smoldering ruins. As he looks around the city, everything has changed. He can smell just in such a way that it causes his stomach to, to retch. He can smell the smell of death that permeates the city of Jerusalem. As he looks at all of the dead bodies that lie in the streets and those that are buried underneath the rubble of their one, once homes. When Babylon had finally breached the city, after months of siege, they were so angry, so fed up with all of the time they had had to waste outside of the city that they literally ravaged the city, and they ravaged everyone inside the city. And as Jeremiah, the prophet, now walks through these once proud streets in the book of Lamentations, the second chapter, 
he describes the wreckage that he sees around him. And perhaps nothing is more heartbreaking than the wreckage he sees around him that he describes in Lamentations, the second chapter, and beginning in verse number 10. It says, the elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. This is the new reality in the city of Jerusalem. And you and I today all can relate to some level, to some degree, with the prophet Jeremiah as he walks through this one city that is nowhere close to what it once was. We can all relate to what it is to wake up one day and find yourself living in a new reality, a new world that is totally different than the world we lived in before. It is amazing. It was a little over a year ago today, I remember, sitting in a chapel service, well, not a chapel service, but a specially called meeting over at PMC where the provost and the president of the university announced that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were shutting down campus one year ago. How different have our lives been over the course of the last year as we've had to embrace this, this new reality of these things that we wear on our faces. The, I don't like to call it social distancing because we never ought to social distance from each other. But the physical distancing that we have to have with each other. I, look at our chapel here today. I, I'm used to looking out at a filled chapel. And today, most of you, except for those of you that are on the program today and, and are here, Right, you're watching in a place that we never thought you would be doing chapel in on the virtual classrooms and the virtual chapels in which we live. This is the new reality of what we are and what we're experiencing a year into this thing. And the numbers are still staggering. To think that in the U.S. now over 535,000 people have died. And in the world... 2.66 million people have died. And here's the reality that hits home even more to us today, is those numbers of those who have died in the U.S. and the world are not just numbers to most of us, but to many of us. Those numbers represent names, names of friends, names of family members. I will not ever forget the moment on September the 1st when the assisted living home where my mom was residing called me to tell me that her COVID test had come back positive and that they were transporting her to the emergency room. The next day, thanks to an extremely kind nurse, so I will not give any other indications of where it was, a very kind nurse stuck me through a back door into the emergency room 
where I remember standing on the other side of the glass. He pushed my mom's bed up to the glass. Standing on the other side of the glass, believing that this would be the last time I would see my mom alive. This would be the last time I could look into her face and tell her that I loved her. I know what that feels like. Now, by God's grace, I don't know what else to say. My mom made it out the other end of the hospital. But I understand the feelings of those who have not had that experience. I know what it feels like to believe that you're never going to have the feeling of touching just a hand on the shoulder of somebody that you love so deeply and so much. This is the new reality of the world in which we live. And as the prophet Jeremiah stands among the dead and the dying, he is so overcome by grief, the sensory presence of it all, that he crumbles and falls to the ground in a bed of ashes. There, too emotionally dead to cry anymore, too physically distraught to move. But finally, he begins to to force himself up to his knees. He reaches up to the collar of his garment, and with all of his strength, he rips the garment from its neckline down to his waist, exposing his hairy chest. And he reaches down into that ash pile in the ground, and he begins to rub it on his face. He pulls out a dagger that is in his holster on his left leg and begins to shave off in large clumps his hair, begins to pick up the ashes and drop them over the top of his head. And there, on his knees in the city of Jerusalem, he begins to allow the pain of his heart to be expressed. Lamentations, the third chapter. Look at just a little bit of his prayer, verses 1 and 2. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and has made me walk in darkness rather than in light. Verse 5, he has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. Verse 7, he has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Verse 13, he pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. In verse 17, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. Can you relate this morning to the deep heart cry of Jeremiah as he is forced to embrace the new reality of what is in the city of Jerusalem? And when he's finished with this prayer, he takes his ash-stained hands and puts it over his face as once again he begins to uncontrollably weep. And yet, by the way, here's the irony. Here's the irony of the prophet Jeremiah. You see, Jeremiah knows the answer to the why question. Jeremiah is clear. He understands why Jerusalem is experiencing this type of pain and suffering. He knows the answer. After all, he's God's anointed prophet called by God to deliver the message to both king and people that if you don't turn your hearts back to God, God will be forced to withdraw his protective hand from you and you will be at the mercy 
of your enemies. He knows as he weeps in the ground, he knows the reason for the pain and suffering, and yet knowing the why does not take away any of his agony, any of his grief. Have you ever thought that if you just knew the why, maybe it would make it easier to live in the midst of pain and suffering? Jeremiah knows the reason, and it does nothing to ease. It does nothing to soothe his pain. I turn from the prophet to the pastor. A man lies in his bed, his body pale in complexion, too weak almost to move. He has finally once again fought off another coughing fit and is trying to regather his breath. On the bed beside him lays a pen and a piece of paper where he's been for the last two hours trying to compose a letter as he begins to breathe a little bit more easily again. He picks up the page and begins to read what he's already written. As he does, a tear trickles down his face. How could this have happened in only a year's time? It is so hard for him to say goodbye as he writes this letter. All of this journey that he's now on began 10 years ago when, when he attended an evangelistic series held by Dr. Henry Clay Morrison. At that meeting, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And because Dr. Morrison saw potential in him, he invited him to move to Louisville, Kentucky to become the editor of Dr. Morrison's journal, The Pentecostal Herald. And immediately, he, he jumped at the opportunity. He transitioned to Louisville, Kentucky. He became the editor over the next 10 years of that journal. In his time in Louisville, he, he got married. He began to have a family. And, and in those 10 years of working on that journal, he found, he discovered the true calling of his heart was to work in pastoral ministry. So 10 years after transitioning to Louisville, Kentucky. He has God's internal calling, recognized by the body of believers as they lay their hands on him in recognition that God has called him to ministry. And immediately he receives a call to, to transition to Stonesville, Kentucky, to serve as the pastor of a small rural church. And when he arrives that first day, a smile is on his face literally from ear to ear especially in the joy that's in his heart. He had finally found his deepest passion, that which he knew God had ordained him, God had called him to do. But only a year into that pastoral ministry, things begin to change. He had always had somewhat of a frail constitution. He had always been somewhat prone to illness. And for the 10 years he had worked as an elder, the illness had never stopped him from being able to complete his work, but now that as he found himself in pastoral ministry and the burdens of pastoral ministry, it was too much physically for him. And so he lies in bed, another two-month bout with illness, looking at that letter that he's now composing for his church board of elders, announcing his resignation from pastoral ministry. Why had God allowed him to start living the dream only to take it away 
in an instant so quickly. And for Thomas, the why questions would always remain elusive throughout his entire life. Back in the charred city of Jerusalem, Jeremiah on his knees, his hands covering a tear-soaked, ash-stained face. He cries that prayer that we read from Lamentations, the third chapter, that expresses the deepest pains, the deepest agony of his heart. But as he continues to pray, suddenly a memory flashes through his mind. And the tenor and the tone of his prayer begins to change. In fact, here in Lamentations, the third chapter, and beginning in verse 22, we see the way in, in which the tenor and the tone of Jeremiah's prayer begins to change, beginning in verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope is in him to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of our God. Jeremiah has come to a moment in time where God meets him, not with pushing his pain to the side, but where God meets him right in the midst of his pain. But it is still a moment that is eluding Thomas for the last 15 years of his life since being forced to resign from pastoral ministry. He has lived and his family have lived an incredibly unstable life constantly moving, constantly finding new jobs, and every time it always ending the same, a new job that goes well for four, five, six months until suddenly illness raises its ugly head again, and he's forced to resign during a month or months-long struggle with physical illness. And so every time he recovers, they move somewhere else, so that not everyone will know about him, not everyone will know about his struggles with sickness. And so they spend 15 years moving from one city to the other in Kentucky. And then once they've lived in every city in Kentucky, they move on to Indiana and begin to move from city to city in Indiana. And finally, they move into New Jersey, city after city, job after job, always ending in illness, in resignation. And this evening, as he makes his way home from his small office in New Jersey, where he now at least temporarily sells life insurance, he is once again praying that God would respond to the why questions of his life, to why this was happening to him. But as he listens for that answer, no answer seems to come. And suddenly he finds himself in mind and in heart and in soul in the book of Lamentations, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And something begins to change as he begins to run those chapters through his head. Something begins to change in his experience. 
He begins to experience not the absence of pain, but in spite of the pain, he begins to experience some strange peace working its way into his soul and into his spirits. And perhaps what he saw is perhaps what I see when I read Lamentations, the second and the third chapter. I see an image. It's that, that image, yes, of Jeremiah talking about the women in the streets with their children in their laps, either dead or dying. And suddenly, that image reminds me of another image, an image forever memorialized by Michelangelo's statue, the Piatta, that shows Mother Mary on the ground, the dead, limp body of her only son in her arms. And suddenly I recognized the truth of Philip Yancey's words and disappointment with God. When he says, God answers our questions about pain and suffering, not with a word, at least not with just a spoken word, but God responds to our pain and suffering, not with a word, but with a visit. He shows up in the person of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ hangs on that cross, his back filleted open by that Roman beating, a crown of thorns pressed down upon his head, spikes in his wrist, spikes in his feet. In that moment at Calvary, it forever answers our question about the fairness of this life. In this sinful world in which we live, life will never be fair. There will always be pain and suffering in the world in which we live. And Jesus doesn't offer us a way around that pain and suffering, but he does offer us a way through that pain and through that suffering. At the cross, we see that even God himself in the person of Jesus Christ is not exempt from the pain and suffering of this world. But we also see from that, that Good Friday to that Resurrection Sunday, that God does offer us a way through. Because when Jesus came out of that tomb two days later, Jesus came out of that tomb to give us an example of that day that one day will be. Till Jesus comes, till that bright and glorious day when Jesus comes, none of the issues of pain and suffering that we experience in this world will be vanquished. We live our lives right now, quite frankly, in the Sabbath between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. As Thomas made his way home, that began to stir within his heart. As he sits for a moment at the foot of the cross, he, he begins to recognize that his life for the last 15 years has not quite been what he thought it was. He thought for the last 15 years... God's presence had been absent in his life, but as he begins to contemplate the last 15 years, he begins to suddenly recognize the faithfulness of the God he serves. He begins to suddenly recognize, not just intellectually, but in the depths of his soul and the depths of his spirit, he begins to recognize, he begins to embrace, he begins to love the fact that though not everything he wanted in life has been his, that everything his family ever needed, God has provided.
As he arrives home, his heart more on fire than it has been in the last 15 years. He grabs a pen, he grabs a piece of paper, and he begins to write. He begins to write this song that is growing in the depths of his spirit. And as the words begin to fill that page, Thomas has no idea of the lasting effects of his words and the effect they would have in the lives of people who would one day join him in this song, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no turning in thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, unto me. As we continue this journey, this journey through this new reality of COVID, however long it lasts, whenever it ends, I pray that as we travel from this journey, we might spend time at the foot of the cross, that we might see the God at the foot of the cross who enters into our suffering, a God that doesn't promise us a way around suffering, but promises to walk with us through our suffering. And may the words of Thomas' song fill our hearts, fill our spirits, fill our soul, though God never promised to give us a way to escape from the pain and the suffering of life. He does give us a way through it, made possible by the faithfulness of God unto you and the faithfulness of God unto me. As we sing that song, may we sing it as a prayer of faith, may we sing it as a prayer of hope, and may we sing it as a prayer of praise.